Blog Talk Radio. Always on Africa on the Move, we would like to 
side with our party by bringing you and introducing you to your political analysts and panelists for the day. We'll first start off with Brother Anthony. We welcome you to Africa on the Moon, Brother Anthony. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Uh, revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Finally, Brother Anthony, we now bring in Brother Haki. Brother Haki, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. <clears throat> My name is Haki Kamafi Mishoki. Kind of African awareness, and you know, <clears throat> I'm all about the institution building. Uh, one of the reasons why I think institutions are extremely important, I recently read an article which talks about uh, some of the clans as a uh, cohort having nine. What they want to do is just a, 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 a statistical measurement called consumer price index chain. And what it does is understates inflation. In the process, what it does is seeks to minimize poverty in society. So, as a result of, you know, um, numerical changes by the Office of Management and Budget, it can simply, on paper, state that poverty no longer exists. The way all the way the institutions operate, they operate as though poverty really doesn't exist. So, for example, when you talk about something like Social Security or Medicare or SNAP, uh, these programs are for the most indigent, the most poorest people in society. Simply by utilizing the CPI chain, what happens is that they can essentially say poverty doesn't exist, so therefore these programs are underfunded or eliminated. So clearly uh, what they're saying is that there's a large number of people who are, in fact, expandable. So for those people who don't particularly care about people who are on Medicare or, or, or kids who are part of SNAP, Social Security also is being affected because as long as you consider the economy doing well based upon the CPI chain statistics, then certainly you can underfund Social Security, which means that Social Security uh, potentially is on its way out. So people got to be very, very concerned in terms of, you know, uh, this, this, this maneuver that they're implementing. Now keep in mind, this is something that was implemented by, back in the 90s by Bill, President Bill Clinton. So it's not a new strategy in terms of, you know, um, downplaying poverty in American society. Now, one last thing I'll close with this, Brother Africa. Now, you know, one of the things when we talk about wages, minimum wage wages, one of the things is that when we talk about the CPI chain index, the thing you've got to be concerned about, based upon the how they change the numbers, can determine the level at which they create affordable housing. If the government says that based upon the CPI chain, that in fact everybody's doing well, then what they're saying is that there's no need for affordable housing based upon the CPI chain, and so therefore there's no affordable housing. And this flies in the face of the reality that when we talk about, you know, um, affordable housing, one thing we're very, very clear on is that as, as, as one of those uh, economic assets for the rich, uh, they, they, they ensure a, a large return on investments. As a consequence, it means that the rents can go up yearly on a yearly basis, which means that it's out of the reach of the average uh, citizen in America. But it doesn't matter because as long as CPI chain says that, hey, you know what, according to us, you're doing well, the poverty doesn't exist, then what they're saying is that you should be able to afford those rents even though those rents continue to escalate exponentially year in and year out. So clearly there's a problem. So we need institutions to com combat this reality. And we've got to start thinking about what are we going to do because whereas we, whereas we might be somewhat um, lackadaisical in terms of, you know, our, our approach to this kind of phenomenon, we've got to understand at some point this is overwhelming. It's going to impact 
most people in the society, unless you're part of the top 10% of the society. So we have to we have to start thinking about this stuff. We need uh, institutions to critically think about this stuff because, after all, the bottom line is that we're all implicated in this insanity, and that's just the bottom line. And, Brother Africa, thanks for having me on the program. Thank you, Blackie. Next, we'll go to Brother Moses, and we will welcome Brother Moses to Africa on the Mall. Welcome, Brother Moses. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. Thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. We thank you. All right, let's continue to travel down this road of liberation. We have listening audio, listening audience, our agenda entails the first segment, discussion on what's going on in your world and the community, followed by we will speak on the thing, what the media is not talking about, part two. Let me repeat that. The theme is what the media is not talking about, part two. And the last segment will be our closing remark and announcement. You are always welcome to join in to share your views, your comments, your questions for each segment by calling the number 323-679-0841. That's 323-679-0841. This program is for you. So, panelists, let's talk about a little bit about what's going on in your world community, and we're going to start off today talking about this weekend, this great institution called African Liberation Day. As of yesterday, by the All-African People, co-sponsored by the All-African People, Revolutionary Party, GC, and the African Women's Association, they had African Liberation Day, Palestine Day, from 12 to 3 yesterday, and the theme was Generation of Resistance and Revolt, Rebellions and Revolution, as illuminated in Cuba, Haiti, Libya, Palestine, and Venezuela, smashed the repression industrial complex worldwide. And this year's theme was honor and giving a tribute to the masses of African people. So, in that light, our panel is going to talk a little bit about the nature of what they got from this institution yesterday and we will start out right now with Brother Anthony in terms of maybe what he learned, his analysis of the institution, and what you'd like to share with our listening audience. Certainly. Uh, I, thought, uh, I thought yesterday's program was very enlightening and informative. Uh, one common thread that ran through uh, the presentations was how rampant and uh and um pervasive neocolonialism is uh throughout Africa and the African diaspora. And for uh, you know, and um that was a common thread and how and how uh uh you know determined 
imperialism is to try to destroy uh, the revolutionary processes in Cuba and Venezuela. And uh, let's see, uh, due to, um, uh, there wasn't, um, uh, I, 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 due to factors, be, you know, be, be beyond, uh, you know, our control, there wasn't as much uh, discussion about Zionism and uh, Libya as uh, as w w would have been appropriate. But I think overall, I think the program was very positive. And uh, people who, who weren't familiar with, uh, with our recent history got a chance to learn a lot about what's going on, uh, particularly in Africa and uh, Haiti. And uh, and uh, the thing they and and the commonality is that neocolonialism is running rampant. In other words, you have a lot of the anti-people uh, forces that look like us, you know, on the front lines of our oppression. So I thought that was, uh, you know, rather informative. Okay, thank you, Brother Anthony. Your observation and analysis, Brother Haki. It's for your participation yesterday, African Liberation Day, Palestine Day. Yeah, I, I concur um, with Brother Anthony. Uh, you know, I think that the, the presentations were very, very well laid out. I think it's very, very clear, you know, when you listen to the presentations, that the situation for working people, poor people, African people specifically, is very perilous. And I think at some point when you look at the way the system operates, it's very, very clear. And so it's coming upon us, it seems to me, that you know, we got to find some way in terms of dealing with this situation. Uh, you know, Martin Luther King used to talk about making a way out of no way. Uh, one of the things we have to start thinking about is certainly trying to create a way out of no way in terms of resolving the dilemma that we're confronted with. Clearly, the imperialist system is in, in chaos, uh, it's in decline. And so we talk about the kind of desperation that takes place, uh, you know, uh, that was illuminated you know, by the speakers. Uh, clearly, I certainly hope that when people listening to the speakers understood you know, when they, when they talk about the urgency of the situation, you know, confronting African people globally, understand that this is, this is not a joke. There is a tendency among many people to see the struggle in terms of class. And I understand there's also that racial element, in ter that racial dimension in terms, in terms of struggle. So when we talk about imperialism, we can't simply talk about a class analysis in terms of imperialism because that's only part of the equation in terms of how imperialism rolls. We also have to take into consideration the whole question in terms of, of, terms of color. So unless we do that, then we can't adequately theorize in terms of which we're forward in terms of our struggles. So I thought that the um, presenters did a very good job in terms of underscoring, you know, just how critical the situation is. And while some real critical analysis in terms of, you know, how we find ourselves out of this, uh, we are in real, 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 real trouble. So I enjoy the program immensely, and I uh, can't wait for next year to, uh, to, to uh, be a part of it next year. Okay, going to, before I make my analysis, I would like to go back to, um, Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, I noticed in life the only thing is constant change. I realized this year, for the first time from my understanding, African Liberation Day, Palestine Day, took on a different form. It, it took on the form of a Pan-African and International Revolutionary Podcast Symposium. That means instead of being in a particular park or a particular facility in a particular city, you made the information available for people to hear and to participate on a global basis. Can you just talk about the importance of having it in that form and how you think in the future they're making be used as a tool 
where more people can participate? Yes, certainly. I think the significance of having it in that form was that it made uh, the program more accessible to people that either uh, either do not have the uh, economic uh, means to travel to a particular location or are limited by job or health reasons from doing a whole lot of travel. For example, um, Comrade Billy Tigat was able to speak, and uh, he's, uh, I think he's based so, uh, somewhere in California, but he was able to participate, uh, and uh, and I think people were able to hear him very clearly. And... Um, you know, and and it, and it, and it's and it was rather historic in my opinion because uh, our relationship with him goes back prior to the formation of the uh, All African People's Revolutionary Party. So I thought that was very positive. Uh, you, you know, to be able to hear him speak, uh, Brother uh, Billy Tyak is uh, chief of the Piscataway Nation of the Indigenous People. So uh, you know, we got a chance to hear from him. I thought that uh, that was positive, and I thought another positive is that that for those people that for various reasons aren't able to travel, uh, you know, to uh, to to DC or, or wherever we may may choose to uh, hold LD in the future, it made it more accessible to, to them. Okay. Now, when you say it was a Pan-African International Revolutionary Podcast Symposium, let me just share with our listening audience and some of the participants to show you that it reflects that, that reality. One, you know, we had the Congo in the house, by, by from the Friends of the Congo, by Brother Maurice Connie. We also had Haiti in the house from the Free Haiti Movement, by Sister Izele Danto. We also had the first secretary political section of Venezuela Embassy in London, in London, United Kingdom, Marcos Garcia. We had U.S. Cuban relations with and by Anna August. We also had a statement from the Arab Bad Party, along with other organizations such as we had Covert Action with Louis Wolf. Himoshima, Nagasaki, Peace Community of the National Capital Area with John Stanback, as well as we had the, Venice, the D.C. Venezuela Action Network with Shirley Pate. Those were some of the organizations that participated in this year, African Liberation Day and Palestine Day. And you can see the international aspect of it, the pan-African aspect of it, and the revolutionary aspect of it. I thought that was very, very, very beautiful in terms of that, that those dynamics. One of the things I enjoy about the symposium is that what it did was it showed the connectedness of the struggles of the movements and as well as those who are the enemy to humanity. And by recognizing your friends and your foes and by getting a better understanding in terms of from primary sources, we are in a better position to understand our current realities, which will allow which will allow us to make better analysis 
for future actions so we can be uh, victorious. So that's what this kind of symposium, this this, this type of institution uh, does for oppressed people. It, it's raised their consciousness. It allowed them to have primary information. But more importantly, you know, you begin to get a better picture from a global perspective of how all of these things interconnected. So that's one of the major factors that I enjoy in terms of this particular um, African Liberation Day and Palestine Day. So in other final thoughts, um, Haki Anthony, before we move forward on African Liberation Day, Palestine, Palestine Day, 2019. Yes, I am. Um, I'm hoping that those people who uh, who listen to the program, I hope it uh, uh, you know it, it, it enlightened them and inspired them to increase their level of political activity. Uh, because I think that's the most important thing that we could take away from this is that we need to increase our level of political work and struggle, uh, you know, to organize our people. Because one of the lessons from that, I, that that one takes away from the symposium is that our enemies are very well organized and are very powerful. But we have to get organized. And um, and uh, uh, Brother Maurice from Friends of the Congo was talking about how the youth in the Congo are organizing and try, and studying their history so that you know so that they cannot re- remove Patrice Lumumba and his work from that history as they've tried to do the way they uh that the, 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 they they destroyed his body but uh this, the youth are studying and uh that's very encouraging and we must encourage our youth around the world to do uh, to do likewise. And brother Haki and brother Anthony, one of the things I noticed this year for African Liberation Day, in conjunction with the theme, and I'd like to just get your response to the statement. We know that the true history makers are the masses of the people, and not individuals, not leaders. Now this year it was dedicated to the masses, and. Brother Anthony, when I read some of the literature about the all African people of the D.C., they gave great honor to the masses. Now, that's a big difference between most movements or organizations. They have a tendency to look at leaders and think leaders are the ones where all things are dependent upon, whereas your organization is taking a different perspective on that. Can you talk about this question of the faith, the belief, and the honor that y'all gave to the masses of African people humanity? As as relates to many other people, they have a different perspective from that. Sure. Well, um, well, let's see. From a from a socialist perspective, and we are a socialist party. I want to uh, make that clear. We uh, we believe that the masses of the people are the makers of history, and it is from the masses of the people. Uh, that leadership emerges that uh, w- who are merely catalysts for change, but it is the people that do that do the work that carry out the tasks necessary to bring about revolution. And um, that has been shown throughout history. 
and you do uh we 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 don't downplay the importance of individuals who serve as catalysts for change but uh but it is from the people that that leadership emerges because it is society from which an individual gets their knowledge uh experience and uh and because it is from the sacrifices that the people make that it is possible to get uh education knowledge wisdom etc it is to the people that individuals owe that debt to so uh so uh, so looking at that from that perspective it is the masses of the people that make history and also we must recognize also the the uh the triple oppression that women face and the role that they have played historically in our struggle and i thought uh the program yesterday did a good job of emphasizing uh the 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 importance and the role of women and uh in our struggle to ch- achieve liberation and your take on this question of the masses, the rank of foul, the everyday brother and sister, and seeing them with some sense of humanity and value, Brother Hackey. Well, yeah. <coughs> yeah, there's, there's no question about that. Uh, without the participation of the masses of, of people, change is simply impossible. Uh, one of the things you got to keep in mind when you talk about, you know, about strategy, uh, keep in mind, those forces in which to keep humanity enslaved understand that long as they can divide the movement, uh, particularly by, you know, um, identifying certain individuals in the community, giving them visibility, giving them finance and so forth, uh, they do so because they understand that they distract from, from the opportunity in terms of actually, you know, creating a, a groundswell where, you, where the mass of people participate and change. So they attempt to formulate a lot of, as much confusion as they possibly can. But, once the people have clarity in terms of what the movement is all about, why it's imperative that they participate in this movement, then with that mindset, then it can't, it's unstoppable. And this is what the ruling class understands. It's the same reason when you look at the, the Yellow Vest in France, when you look at that's such a powerful movement, then you understand that the people collectively understand, while all of us working in concert, that we can conceivably, it's not possible for us to achieve that which we want to achieve, namely, you know, to be treated with dignity and respect in a society which has the means to do it, but nonetheless, uh, people in power want to delegate uh, the, the masses of folks to the level of slaves. So clearly you have to have the masses of people in terms of moving forward. And this notion that, in fact, that their leadership is, 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 is in terms of prioritizing, is more important in terms of all else, that's very, very erroneous. And I think that at this point in history, I think most people who engage in political struggle understand the absurdity of making such a claim even though historically people have always thought that. But now I think now people are much more clear in terms of the science behind raising strategy, raising the struggle. And so they understand that it's the mass of people who, who, who concretely in a position to make a change in terms of the kind of uh, a redress that we need in society to live as, you know, human beings. So I think you're absolutely correct. It's all about, it's all about the masses of people and nothing short of that. And Brother Moses, we're not going to forget about you. You have a long history of supporting the institution of African Liberation Day. Can you share with our listening audience uh, what that particular institution means to you and why not? Why should they support it as well as help to build it? 
Yes, thank you. Uh, it's a very, very educational experience to go to African Liberation Day and uh, the, the, the discipline and uh, organization of the party uh, is is evident and in 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 the speakers and the, uh, the relationships that have been developed over the years in, in terms of the various and many different struggles that are exhibited at the the, the all African people all African liberation day African liberation day and uh, I just want to say brother Africa it's the it's the, the, the the recording is on the archives, isn't it? Yes, the AAPIP will make it available where you can go to their website. We're going to give that information out in a minute where they can go to the website. You want them to go to www.aaprp.gc.org. If you go to their website, they're going to have it available where you can go there and click on the link and listen to the program. So we encourage everybody, please go to the AAPIPGC website by going to www.a-aprp.gc.org. So on this note, what we're going to do right now, we're going to take a station break. When we come back, we will continue the discussion on what's going on in our community, what's going on in our world and the community. And we would like to have you to shine in on what's going on in your world and the community by calling 323-679-0841. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Moon.
welcome back to Africa on the Move. We are celebrating Africa Liberation Day, Palestine Day, 2019 weekend. As the brothers just stated that we were stolen from Africa and brought to the miracles, fighting for our arrival, and we are still fighting for our survival. What are we going to do? So we will continue the discussion with our political analysts and panelists in terms of what's going on in your, commu- in your world community. And the first thing I would like to share with my actual pa- my panelists, today is May the 19th, which is the birthday of Ho Chi Minh and Malcolm X. How should we honor and remember the works and the life of these two beautiful brothers? Brother Haki? All of them is to continue the struggle. Uh, keep in mind that um, these, these brothers sacrificed their lives for the betterment of humanity. Uh, you know, they could have very easily have sold out. Um, they could have made more money by simply, you know, um, acquiescing to the people in positions of power. They chose to do what was humane, what was right. And so you got to respect that. The mere fact that uh, they stood up against tremendous odds to proclaim, you know, that um, this is right and that is wrong. Uh, just very stressed, very special human beings. And so, therefore, understanding that, uh, we we have to pay homage to them, and we have to keep that message alive. And let me just also add, Brother Africa, one thing, too, I think it's important. When we talk about principles, there is um, the young lady um, young lady who they just re, uh, re-arrested, uh, Chelsea Manning. Uh, much respect for her, her principles in terms of unwillingness to play ball with those corrupt forces, those forces of, of, of uh, injustice who want to utilize her for the sole purpose of um, not only demonizing uh, those who stand up for what's right, but in the process, you know, um, intimidating those who would stand up and do uh, what is right in terms of these movements. So much respect for her. But back to uh, Ho Chi Minh and, and Malcolm X. Uh, these clearly are two giants uh, in, terms, in terms of the movement. Uh, and one of the things, you know, uh, we, I, I would love to say that it would be nice if we had some more Malcolm X's on the horizon. But, of course, we understand, strategically speaking, that those positions of power won't make that mistake twice. Whereas back in the, back in the 60s, when you had this, this, um, this, this innovation in terms of different technology when it comes to communication, uh, it was an opportunity for them to use that, that, that equipment uh, by, by highlighting Malcolm X. Well, today they won't do that. So those individuals who stand and, 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 and talk about the injustice will articulate why mass movements are so important those individuals don't seem, don't don't get any limelight at all. They receive no coverage whatsoever, because those in the power understand that's important. In order that, that we neutralize, that they neutralize certain voices, in in in, in the press nationalist communities, because the, because more visibility means more understanding among the masses of folks. And what they want to do is limit that understanding among the masses of folks by limiting uh, what people who are in the progressive community have to say. So only those individuals who say things that are counterproductive get promoted. So in that regard, um, Ho Chi Minh and, and, and Malcolm X was exceptional. Uh, you know, you know, despite the opportunity to do um, make lots of money doing other things, they chose to do what's right, and you got to respect that. Brother Anthony. Yes, uh, let's. I think uh, the significance of uh, Malcolm X and Ho Chi Minh are the contributions they made to the advancement of humanity. Uh, for those who might not uh, who might not know or remember, Ho Chi Minh was uh, uh, was in the leadership of uh, the Vietnamese Communist Parties in the early days 
of the Vietnamese liberation struggle. He guided uh, uh, Vietnam during the Vietnam War, and it was under his leadership that the Viet- Vietnamese defeated U.S. and, and world imperialism uh, to liberate uh, all of their country. And uh, Malcolm X, uh, he, was, uh, he was a catalyst and continued the work, uh, to ach- the struggle to achieve pan-Africanism, uh, that was uh, that that was heavily influenced by his parents, Earl and Louise Little, both of whom were members of the UNIA. And I would add that uh, Ho Chi Minh listened uh, to Marcus Garvey's uh, speeches and was uh, and was an active supporter of the United Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League while he was in the U.S. For a brief period of time, and uh, it's very important. So, uh, so, so you see that there's an interconnectedness and a continuum in terms of our struggle to achieve liberation and scientific socialism. And Malcolm X's importance is that uh, is that he tried to make that connection between Africans in the diaspora and Africans at home. And, uh, and 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 he inspired another catalyst for change, Brother Kwame Ture. So uh, so you so if you look at the history, you see there's a continuum in terms of our struggle to achieve Pan Africanism. And we're going with Brother Moses. Yes, Brother Africa, this is a pleasure to be here. Um, the, um, the Ho Chi Minh um, was, you know, a great leader. Um, he he summed up the inspirations, the aspirations of the, the people, and um, was able to capture the hearts and imaginations of the people to gain leadership. Oh, and um, and uh, it, it was it was the people of. Vietnam, the courageous people of Vietnam who were able to defeat U.S. imperialism, and um, and he is is enshrined in their hearts and minds as a leader who cared about them and who who uh, gave his life serving the people. Um, Malcolm X, of course, is the prince of the revolution in the U.S. Uh, uh, our black shining prince. He he. He he, um, eloquently voiced our our minds and hearts uh, to the power structure, and uh, and was ultimately killed because of it. But he but um, he never sold out, and uh, and he will always be remembered as a great leader. Thank you. You know, for me, if we want to carry out the legacy. These two brothers, I think there are a couple lessons that we can learn from them. Number one, they understood the necessity for organization. Not only were they in organization, but they have been in organization. They know that organization is the weapon for the press. They know that you must be organized. So our brothers and sisters, if we're going to look at these two individuals as great, great individuals, we must understand that they are nothing more than a reflection of the people. They knew the necessity for organization. 
so you really want to honor them, then you need to join the organization or form one. The second thing, I think they had a um, characteristic of being fearless. They had no problem of speaking truth to power. I think part of this dynamic of being fearless came from one love of the people, but more importantly, they were organized. They had an organized base. You know, power would come from the organized people. So they have an organized base. So, brothers and sisters, if you want to overcome your individual feel, join an organization, unite with the people. The people together are fearless. There are nothing that cannot be achieved by a unified people. And last but not least, I would just say that they understood the necessity for political education. These brothers constantly read, study, read, and study, read, and study, and read. There are people we must read. It's important to read. Without information, you cannot think. And without an organization, you can't think clearly. They typify these particular aspects of, of, of learning. So those are the kind of legacies that I remember the most when I think about these two individuals. And I think there are people who will bode very well for our people. And we will internalize those particular values and aspects that I have just mentioned. So panelists, right now what we want to do is Give you a few minutes to talk about what's going on in your world community. We right now we'll start over with Brother Hackey. In particular, Brother Hackey, we'd like to talk about what's going on in your world and the community. Sure, a couple of things. First, African awareness, we travel the road of liberation and freedom to Cuba. We've been going to Guantanamo, Santa de Cuba, and Havana. This trip takes place July 24th to July 31st. More information, we encourage you to give us a call at 202 714 9435, or email us at African Association, or one word, number two, at gmail.com. We encourage people to go to see Cuba for themselves firsthand. And the second thing, Brother Africa, I just want, I just want to talk about briefly is that, you know, you know, when we talk about the insanity of this American society, you know, we, we have to take, um, take notice of the fact that when we talk about pollution, uh, it's a major problem, you know, particularly in the West. But in America, it's, extreme, it's an extreme problem. Uh, one of the things I recently read an article which is talked about the Pentagon being the biggest polluter in the world, and they're talking about pollutants like depleted uranium, oil, jet fuel, uh, pesticides, defoliants, like, you know, remember an Agent Orange? Like, remember in, in Vietnam when they dropped all this Agent Orange supposedly to uh, kill the, the vegetation and, and not to do so much harm to, to the people? Well, of course, in hindsight, we realized that Agent Orange was, very, was a carcinogen. And they end up giving a lot of people uh, a lot of cancer. Even today, kids are still being born with um, uh, birth defects. So clearly, um, this, this propensity in terms of these kind of poisons to be mass-produced in America is a real problem. Now, according to the Department of Defense, they stated, and this is from the Department of Defense, they say that 39,000 areas spread across 19 million acres in the U.S. Uh, land have been impacted you know, by these poisons. And that is very, very interesting. Uh, now, recently, there was a storage depot in, uh, of nuclear waste in the Marshall Islands and was leaking nuclear waste into the Pacific Ocean. And so often we talk about the decline of fish. Clearly, this, this depositing of the water is not going to do anything in terms of help, helping the fish stocks replenish. So clearly, this is a problem. It's something that human, human beings have to think about. And when we talk about militarism, we're talking about that uh, Trump talking about a billion dollars for nuclear weaponry. And keep in mind, Barack Obama also spent a billion for nuclear weaponry. We have these byproducts, this waste. The question is, what are we going to do with all of this? 
Now, for those individuals who are not particularly concerned about the radiation leaking in the Marshall Islands, uh, keep in mind in the continental U.S., they got t- over 1,200 facilities, and in, in all, all those facilities, uh, 900 facilities are located in abandoned military facilities, which means they're close to population areas. Uh, in particular, there's one called the West Lake Landfall in, in uh, Missouri, and it's had a problem with leaking. Now, superimposed upon this, this problem is that not only is it leaking, but a 1,000 feet from there, they got an underground fire from nuclear waste going on underground. So clearly the people can be evacuated at any point, you know, those two things meet. Uh, so clearly uh, this, this, this propensity in terms of destruction at all costs, we got to really evaluate that. So people often think militarism is a good thing. We're not understanding that you, create, you generate all this waste, and the question is what are you going to do with it? Because once you generate that waste, the byproducts last for thousands and thousands of years, and that stuff is continuing to be active, and there's not much you can do with it. And so, therefore, what, what kind of insanity would prepare anybody to continue to mass produce these kind of carcinogens, knowing damn well it has potential to destroy life. Uh, clearly, we, we, we have to realize that militarism is not in the best interest of humanity, and we have to reject this notion that militarism is, is, is the best course of action. And until we, until we fundamentally understand that message, we continue to support the military, but we do so at our own demise. Okay, Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world in the community? Okay, uh, a few things. Um, The U.S. is intensifying its efforts to try to overthrow the legitimately elected government of Venezuela. Uh, I heard uh, uh, heard over the news that that, that there's a a U.S. naval ship off of Venezuelan waters. Clearly a provocation, and also uh, and also they are, uh, uh, the police are harassing and arresting uh, the uh, embassy protecting protection collectors that a, a group of uh, you know uh, of uh, U.S. nationals that are trying to defend uh, the Venezuelan embassy in D.C. from takeover. By the uh, by, by the coup plotters uh, led by Juan Guaido, and uh, so uh, so uh, things are intensifying as uh, the U.S. tries to get control of Venezuela's uh, resources and labor, regain regain control over it, and uh, that and also um, you know there's also the intensification. Of violence being perpetrated against Africans, especially Africans that drive cars. Uh, there was a case uh, recently where this uh, African couple that was listening to music got uh, got got, uh, got 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 shot by uh, by 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 a, by a bunch of police. So we need so we need to uh, to be aware and intensify level of organization. Okay, thank you, Brother Anthony, Brother Moses. What's going on in your world in the community? Well, certainly, uh, we definitely recognize the fact that the the Venezuelan embassy has been under attack, and and that uh, it seems that the Trump administration is going to be able to oust the uh, has has oust the, the four remaining people that were there, and uh, and so 
you know, there's been protests, etc. But the balance of power is 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 obviously with the state and uh, its legitimate use of force. And uh, even though it is illegitimate in its in its essence, uh, also Chelsea Man is still holding out his her historic role as the five the grand juries and the witch hunts that they unleash in terms of the WikiLeaks and uh, the exposure of U.S. atrocities in Iraq. And uh, those are the two big things on my mind at the moment. Thank you. You know, panelists, with this, with this embassy issue, do people really understand the implication of that, of what the U.S. government is saying to the rest of the world in terms of people not having the right we have the sovereignty to choose and elect and protect their own interests. And where are the, all these damn politicians who are running for this office and are acting as if nothing exists? How do we raise these contradictions and create a climate where if people don't function on a principal basis, they will never have the means to arrive at any kind of position of leadership to, to, to lead the people, panelists. Uh, we have to hold our leadership accountable. We can only do that through organization. Uh, people, so, Some people don't understand that voting in and of itself is the minimum you can do in terms of uh, participating in a political process. Casting a lever on election day or or, or, or whatever uh, 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 period that a particular office is up for election is the minimum. And uh, uh, let's see, in, a, in in order to exert real political power, you have to have organization. Our people are disorganized, and therefore they cannot hold their leadership accountable for their actions. And even the people that uh, Leslie put in office, it takes organization uh, to hold them accountable. And that's what and uh, and and it's not just money. People think it's uh, think it's money, but uh, but really, it's the ability to exert political pressure. And you can only exert that if if people are organized. And uh, and also people have and, and and through organization, people can make their voices heard. To pull off a demonstration takes organization, but uh, but but we need permanent organization and not merely mobilization. Uh, we can mobilize easily when there is an atrocity, or uh, you know committed in in a particular community. But in order to prevent them from occurring, it takes permanent organization. And that's what's lacking right now. So, Brother Hackey, the model has been established, huh? You go, you can go to any country, make somebody make make announcement to say they're the president. The U.S. probably be back them. And then you go all around the world and just force the people out the embassy and you put in the fake people. Then you legitimize it with the rest of your cronies, because one of the things we have to realize when we look at history, I think someone someone said 
ever since World War Two, if you look at countries that had engagements, had battles with European countries, they never fought these countries in isolation. They're always in conjunction with in conjunction as a group. And what I'm saying is this this battle between US and Venezuela is not just US. US has the allies all over the world out of Europe. There's also is working in cahoots to undermine, to help overthrow the, the, the prison government that's in prison power, Maduro. They have put a blockade against Venezuela and trying to stop the people out. So you got Venezuela versus all of your so-called powerful European countries. So this is the model that the world's looking at. How do we respond to this, Brother Aki? Yeah, well, that is the model. I, I think we have to keep in mind that when we talk about imperialism, keep in mind, America may be the catalyst behind imperialism. It's the driving motives behind imperialism, but keep in mind that Western nations that benefit, at least they think they benefit from this imperialism, and so therefore they support U.S. policy, even though they know clearly it's not only criminal, but it's in violation of international law. That is a problem. I think one of the things is that, you know, this question in terms of, you know, um, autonomy, uh, one, the, one's right in terms of being the most he or she can be, they often is undermined uh, by the kind of principles, or what, not the kind of principles, but the kind of policies that are adopted by the West, which says that uh, we define, you know, your worth, as opposed to you yourself defining your worth. So I think it's fundamentally a problem. So you go to, so you go to Venezuela and you, 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 you try to undermine the government, you tell the people they don't have a right to run their own society. You tell the people that you don't have a right to choose your own leadership, that we're going to unilaterally decide what that, what, who, who your leadership should be. Well, if you've got the kind of contempt for humanity uh, you know, across, the, across the ocean, then what does that say in terms of the kind of lack of respect or, or, or the lack of um, empathy that you have for people right here in America who suffer from the, uh, from the ills of capitalism? So clearly it's the same paradox in terms of, you know, this unwillingness to understand that as, that as, as human beings that you have a fundamental right in terms of creating those societies in which you feel was in the best interest and best expression of, 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 of human existence. Uh, no, one should, should, no one should be forced to, or compelled to, to believe that, in fact, that if you, if you practice those things which are uh, 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 and, and antagonistic, those things which are destructive, those things are unjust, that somehow it should have credibility. No one should be compelled to believe such a thing. But nonetheless, the reality is that increasingly, when you talk about the Democratic Party in terms of their willingness to go along with this, with this maneuver, the strategy by the U.S., it's, it's, it's fundamental as a problem. How is it that this, this, this party that's supposed to be party of the people, how do you justify this trust that's being waged against the Venezuelan? How do you justify it in Europe? How do you justify in terms of this, this atrocity being happen, happening to people in Venezuela? Look at the European population in terms of the European Union and the kind of problems that the, European, the Europeans are having in terms of the European Union. They, too, unilaterally decide that we're going to decide what is in the best interest of human beings. And so we simply establish a, 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 a basis of economics, a, a philosophy which says, says that it's going to guide all of Europe. So even though this philosophy, even though this economic structure they created, raises havoc on the masses of people in Europe, they're saying you must comply to what we're telling you. So clearly this question in terms of autonomy, this question in terms of sovereignty, this, que- this general question of respect, it's not a question, it's not a concern of Western powers. And so this is a real, real problem. Now, Venezuela is fortunate 
at least it has two major powers assisting it. It has it has uh, uh, China and it has Russia. Well, but look at look at little Haiti. Little Haiti could also use that kind of support, but you but Haiti doesn't have those kind of connections in terms of being able, you know, um, uh, being able, you know, to utilize you know those very powerful forces that exist in the world as a counterbalance to U.S. and Western imperialism. So clearly, Brother Africa, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of irony in terms of what's going on, and, and, and you've got to be hard-pressed to understand it. But you have to understand also, you know, that when we talk about imperialism being related to the final stage of capitalism in the final stage of imperialism, then we have to understand, you know, that these people are in desperate straits. And it, to a large extent, that explains when you look at it in terms of the, uh, the, 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 the right-wing movement, the Nazi movement in Europe, and yes, itself. Why is this? Why is this movement so prevalent? Why are these, these people being propped up? Why are these people receiving money from Western nations uh, for the sole purpose of propping up Nazism? How do they gain from spreading Nazism throughout Europe? Well, right? simply, simply, because what happens is once they consolidate Nazism, then you got a situation in which not only are we talking about imperialism, but we're talking about hyperimperialism. So we talk about the structure of people around the world now. But if they're successful in terms of consolidating that Nazism throughout Europe, then not only are you talking about destruction of people, but you're talking about destruction of people on a mass scale. And this is very, very scary. Now, keep in mind, I want anybody to say for, some, for one minute that when we talk about destruction of people, we some of our people of color who will be destroyed. There are also a large number of white people they have no use for. The system has no use for. And the question for them is just as much as the question for people of color, how do you get rid of all of these people you don't need? And so this is the problem that we're talking about. And, and back to this question in terms of Democrats. Brother Africa, if that doesn't prove to people why the, the Democratic, Democratic Party is bankrupt, I don't think anything will. Uh, clearly, you know, they should be the first to speak out and say, no, 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 what you're doing is fundamentally wrong, it's criminal, and we're not going to be a part of that. We're going to fight you every step of the way. As opposed to the Democratic Party actually acquiescing and saying, okay, we support it. We think uh, this guy Guaido should be the president of, of, of Venezuela, and nobody ever, ever heard of this guy before. You mean? Venezuela has its own political structures. You know, it's a, it's a unique state and should be respected. But the mere fact that they don't respect it speaks volumes in terms of the mindset that exists in the West when it comes to, when it comes to justice. So this question of justice is such that it's, just, it's, not, it's not real in the minds of a lot of Western leaders. It's simply something to say. When the bottom line, when it comes down to it, they could care less about justice. And for them, it's more about power and control. So clearly the world, world is a crossroads. And uh, the struggle continues. You know, they intensified the they intensified the um, difficulties in Cuba. They intensified the difficulties in Zimbabwe. They are now want to create internal strife in Iran. You know, earlier years back, the project of twenty first century uh, think tank. They they made a report in which they said that they want to create a system where they can fight multi walls all at one time. We can see today that that seemed to be the game plan today, which what is playing out. So it behooves those who are oppressed to come together and work together as one, because you can't fight imperialism by yourself. So anyway, panelists, job well done. What we're going to do? We're going to pause for the call. So when we come back. We're going to move, we'll make our transition to the second segment of the program where we're going to talk about the theme today, which, which is the media is not talking about what the media is not talking about. 
That's the theme tonight. We'd like to invite you to call in and join us by dialing in at 323-679-0841. But like Brother Malcolm and Brother Ho would say, Ho Chi Minh would say, we're going to get up and stand up, and we're going to fight imperialism. We'll be right back. Human rights groups. 
Now, from this article, it raises uh, some real interesting dynamics. Some real interesting dynamics. One of the things that came to play when I read this article was that there's a parallel, there's a parallel struggle, a parallel reality between the Africans in Colombia and the Africans in the United States and throughout the world. But I, I just think about the context of the border, yes, at this particular time, because it talks about where the government is either unwilling or unable to protect the welfare of the citizens, in this case, the so-called Afro-Colombians. Now, where have we seen heard this story before? A government that is unable or unwilling to protect its citizens. Now, to my panelists, I want y'all to respond to the question, if a government is unable or unwilling to protect its citizens, then what other options does it leave for our Afro-Colombian brothers and brothers and sisters here in the West when you find yourself in that situation? Brother Anthony, start us off with that discussion. Certainly. I've heard that uh, that uh, that s- similar uh, s- similar sort of a situation inside the U.S. and also uh, and also in other other settler colonies uh, like uh, occupied Palestine, Australia, New Zealand, and uh, and uh, when we when people are in a situation where the government uh, is unwilling or cannot protect them, then according to the law of human survival, they have to organize and protect themselves. And, uh, and it seems, and according to this article, since the uh, Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia laid down arms, the Africans in Colombia have been facing attack from various right-wing uh, uh, capitalist forces inside Colombia, and so, uh, so, so I mean, um, you know, making appeals to um, uh, to, to, to the U.S. and uh, Colombian government, which is in the, in the hands of uh, you know the one uh, percent. Uh, uh, is not is not is not going to solve the problem. Uh, the the uh, the people themselves have to get sufficiently organized to solve that problem, and uh, that's what uh, and and that's what it's going to take. And um, and uh, you know they have to get uh, you know uh, get organized. Um, and uh, it seems like the difference is the forces in Colombia did have an organization, but they're going to have to intensify their level of organization, just as Africans throughout the diaspora uh, have to, because as, uh, uh, you know, as uh, Haki alluded to earlier, we're engaged in a nation-class struggle. And uh, you know, and uh, you have the ru- European ruling ruling class, and their uh, and their uh, you know African cohorts working together to uh, you know to keep the masses of people oppressed and exploited. We have I'd like to add to that struggle. I also think we're engaged in a, not only a nation and class, but also a gender struggle as well. But anyway, let's go with Brother Haki. Brother Haki, 
This situation seems like a parallel situation of Africans in the States and throughout the world, really, where you have a government that is unwilling or unable to protect its citizens. When those situations exist, when that's the reality, how should our brothers and sisters in Colombia respond? How should they respond? Well, I mean, the 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 the, the logical assumption is that they would they would organize. That's a logical assumption. But of course, we got to keep in mind there is their fear factor. Oftentimes, fear sort of negates uh, people's ability to actually stand. So, overcoming the fear is a very, very permanent question uh, in terms of you know Afro-Colombians as well as Africans in the United States. You know, mind for the fact, brother, one of the things you know after uh, 18, 1875. Uh, when we were supposed to be freed, uh, it's very, very interesting, you know, that at that point in which the federal government was actually had troops in place down south to ensure that African people wouldn't be, uh, you know, wouldn't be uh, assaulted and killed. Well, it wasn't until it was three years later, the president of the United States decided that um, no longer would those forces be there, and he removed those forces from the south, freeing up the opportunity or making the opportunity possible for those right-wing forces down south to, again, Renew their, their their violence and the killing of African people down south. Uh, so clearly, uh, you know, the response in terms of Africans at that point in time was that you know organizations were very important. In fact, during those times, where, um, uh, even though there was a large movement, you know, from the south up to the north, uh, those who remained down south understood the importance in terms of organization. And they were very well organized, uh, you know, and so. Uh, I think it's an example that we, we we have to keep in the back of our mind uh, in terms of this question in terms of organization. Because without it, one thing is sure, if those individuals who victimize us understand that by virtue of our disorganization that we are perceived as weak. And as long as we are perceived as weak, then we are prone or we actually encourage those who practice violence to actually carry out that violence. So there's something that we have to understand, you know, despite the fear, despite the apprehension, despite whatever it is, any myriad of reasons that justify people in action, we have to begin to understand at some point that organization is definitely key. Uh, the Colombians had the organization. They they were a big part of FARC in in Colombia. Uh, you know they 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 fought the government to a standstill. The government had to respect them. They signed this agreement. Uh, what happens is that once that agreement was signed, and a year later, a couple of years later, then what? They just reneged on the agreement they signed, and they're back to the same exploitation they did prior to that agreement. So the so the so the, the key here is the point that we have to understand that organ organization doesn't ha- it, it can't rise and then stop. It has to be continuous. We don't have any choice. And the struggle for Africans in America, of course, is that we have to create organizations. I'm not talking about NAACP or or National Urban League. I mean, that's fine. But in terms of what we need to be in terms of as a people, then we need to elevate our thinking in terms of, you know, strategically, you know, how we're going to overcome our troubles in the society. So this oppression can be overcome by a run-of-the-mill kind of analysis in terms of what's going on. And certainly one of the things you can't expect is to be legitimized by those positions of power uh, and then turn around and think that you're going to fight against them. You don't want their legitimization. What you want is respect, and you have to fight for respect. That's the only way you can get it. So organization becomes very, very important. And I'm not going to live in terms of the strategy that you utilize in terms of bringing about change. You do what you got to do. Malcolm X said, by any means necessary, and I subscribe to that philosophy, by any means necessary. You know, whatever it is to take in terms of in being a free human being, then you should proceed to do so. 
And but that's but that's a but that's that is a, it's essentially a mass question. That is something that the people have to decide in terms of which way forward. But I, I but I think that the, the, the parallels, brother African, I'm close with this. I think to a large extent it has a lot to do with the fact that the, the racism that exists in America also exists in Central and South America. The, the lack of understanding about history that it was prevalent in America is also prevalent in Central and South America. So two things have to happen in terms of empowerment about people. One, we have to understand concretely the predicament that we find ourselves in based upon historical analysis in terms of where we are. And secondly, we have to make damn sure that our children are educated about that history. That should, they must know that history. They must know the history. But if they don't know that history, then they simply become unwitting pawns, those positions of power who simply want to manipulate them for their own ends. So I think that is a fundamental problem that we're confronted with as a people, both here and in Central South America. So, you know, I, I would simply say that, you know, uh, you know, we got our work cut out for us. And your response, Brother Moses, when you find an oppressed oppressed people, African people, when they are in in a a situation where the reality is the government is unwilling or unable to protect their human rights and their well-being, how should they deal with that reality, Brother Moses? Well, I'm I'm for one who thought the the fox should never have been disbanded or, or... the, the people need organizations uh, in order to protect themselves from these types of situations. Are and there was more strength in organization than is without it. And, and so, you know, the people now are faced with a need for organization. Uh, uh, that's that's you know they had they had an organization uh, in the park and. Uh, and you know they negotiated the way, but uh, I think you know that's the that's the key to this situation, as far as I'm concerned. Thank you. Okay, you know, our panelists, many times you know they don't teach you about the demographics, the history of who are the people in these geographical areas. When we talk about Colombia, there is an African community in Colombia. Now, some of the organizations. Uh, Afro-Colombians, let's just list some of the organizations that exist inside that particular country of African people. They had the Black Committees process. They had the Association of Afro-Colombian Community Councils. They had the Association of Afro-Descendants Women and North Caucus. Now, these are just some of the African organizations that are fighting for the human rights of Afro-Colombian people. Now, one of the things I thought really interesting in this article, and it's something that that you also see in this country, is that when you're talking about protecting yourselves and oppressed people have the right to own guns, they try to find ways to have you to give up your guns. Now, given the fact that this increased violence, this increase of assassinating African people in Colombia is basically happening in Afro-Colombian communities, do you think it's a wise thing to negotiate a deal where you have to give up your guns? And similar to the, to, to the program here, where they tell the community to buy back your guns, give your guns back to the police. Now, understanding the history and the terrorism that, had, that has historically exists here and throughout the world by people, there will come a point in time you got to protect yourself. Guns are not always your enemy. 
So, Brother Anthony, respond to that particular phenomenon. Is there a wise yeah. man to give up the minimum amount of protection that you may have, considering the historical conditions that you have been confronted with? No. And uh, and people who who subscribe to that don't understand that history correctly and don't understand the level of terrorism that we have been subjected to. And, um, you know, and uh, let's see. And, and um, you know, I, and uh, I subscribe to Malcolm's, you know, uh, dictum that we need to obtain our freedom by any means necessary. And uh, and uh, and in that, uh, you know, and in that case, you do not let your enemy prescribe the parameters for which you you you, you will go you will go to to uh, to get your freedom. You don't, and uh, and uh, you know you don't uh, you know you know every uh, you know you keep all options open, whether uh, talking. Uh, negotiation, uh, whatever, but you don't, but 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 you don't, you don't, you don't rule anything out, and you definitely don't let let your enemy, uh, you, you know, prescribe to you how you're gonna, uh, you know, uh, 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 obtain your freedom. You don't, and uh, and uh, you know, and uh, you know, these buyback programs are a trick. And uh, you know, and the thing about it, though, whether uh, you know what some politicians, uh, uh, you know, uh, promote uh, that we must pre- prevent violence. The question has to be violence by whom, and against whom. And uh, and uh, you know, and the thing about it, though, if if you have a weapon, you need to learn how to correctly use it. And uh, you know, so you, uh, you you know, but uh, but 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 you know, never give it give it up, whatever that is. And you keep all your options open when you when you're in a war. And I think what and I think what happens is because of propag- uh, enemy propaganda, people don't realize we're at war. Brother Aki, is there a is this a sensible and sensible thing to do to give up to give up your arms? At the expense of not having any means of protecting yourself from the terrorism that you have historically been convicted with. Yeah, well, I, I don't, I don't think it's a particular, particular intelligent move. Uh, I really don't. Uh, one of the things is that you know, uh, when you talk about propensity in terms of violence, uh, there's no question about it. Uh, those people in the power, you know, particularly in the Western world. Uh, has no allegiance in terms of humanity, and so therefore their desire is simply to liquidate, and so they don't have a problem in terms of killing. And if that be the reality, then it seems to me that you know, if, if in fact that they perceive you as public enemy number one, then you then by virtue of having no way to defend yourself, then your situation is not only precarious, but it's also tantamount to suicide. Suicide. So I, I, I think that uh, for anybody, you know, to give the weaponry, uh, you know, under these under this, these uh, doggy dog kind of world, I think it's not particularly intelligent. I mean, of course, all of us would like to believe that human that human beings are sensible, uh, you know, that you can engage in discussion, and people can see the the error of their ways and and understand the the, the necessity in terms of uplifting of humanity, because after all, we're all human beings. 
Well, unfortunately, some human beings don't think like that. I mean, a lot of you human beings who don't think like that. Giving up your weaponry in terms of defending yourself, I don't see as, as viable. I don't think it makes any intelligent, intelligent sense at all. Uh, you know, uh, when my brothers and sisters in Colombia, you know, disbanded FARC, you know, the revolutionary uh, movement, you know, armed movement uh, in, in, in Colombia, I, I fail to understand, I, I fail to understand the, the rationale behind that, except they, they obviously believe that the people that they were negotiating were, were, were negotiating above board. But the problem in terms of when we talk about power, uh, and, and Brother Bob Brown talks about it a lot, when we talk about the immorality of power, when people are unable to distinguish that which is right from that which is wrong, then when you're dealing with such individuals, then it seems to me that you have to caution on, 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 the, side of, on, on the side of caution. Uh, you have to err on the side of caution because if you don't, if you, if you give them your arms, uh, then they know that, which means that they're free, they're free to act on their most basic instinct, which is mainly to destroy, to kill. So I think it's a, it's a mistake for anybody, uh, in, in a sense to say. Uh, it, it, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be concerned about, you know, the the, um, the, the large numbers, I mean, the, the arms that exist, you know, on the streets. We've got to be concerned about that because a lot of times, out of ignorance, these arms are used against, you know, against other people who look like themselves. And we have to understand that that's a problem, uh, you know, but when it comes to in terms of the overall picture, and we talk about the, the, the consistent threat, that African people are confronted with both here and Colombia, uh, it, it seems to me, you know, that it's not a wise move in terms of, you know, uh, liquidating your arms. You know, tell them you don't have any, but always be prepared. I, I think it's just a cold reality. Uh, I wish it was different. Uh, it's just it's just not. Uh, you know, we don't control the history. We don't control the way people think. Uh, we, we don't control the motivations of individuals who, 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 who lust for power uh, supersedes all other concerns. Uh, this is a sad reality that we're confronted with. So giving up your weapon tree, I think, is a very, very um, um, ill-advised move. You know, Brother Moses, uh, let's try to con- connect the dots. I can read a statement, and you connect the dots through the parallel of the situation here of Africans in this country to the best of your ability. And other panelists, I want you all to weigh in, too. It states that since the signing of the Peace Accord, and we talk about the Peace Corps, we talk about the organization of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia followed. Since signing the Peace Corps, over 430 social leaders have been assassinated in Colombia, with 106 killed in the caucus alone, according to a local human rights group. The Washington Office on Latin America has counted at least 47 social leaders or members of vulnerable ethnic communities so far this year. Many incidents have many incidents have been concentrated in formal hubs of the conflict. Okay now, looking at those numbers. Now looking at all the deaths that have taken place in the cities inside the United States, looking at all the cases of African children are being missing. Nobody knows not to see anything. So, looking at those realities in Colombia, Colombia, Brother Moses, and looking at the realities in the United States, would it make common sense for us to unite together and work together? Could we seem to be working, working with and working against a common enemy? 
Yeah, that that was that would seem to be the logical conclusion. Um, you know the the situation with the FARC. FARC was a revolutionary group, and uh, to me, like the revolution hadn't been accomplished, so there was there was no need to disband. Uh, if you're a revolutionary group, you're a revolutionary group, and so you know until the revolution has happened, uh, the struggle continues. And so, you know, the forces of reaction uh, have been strengthened, and uh, and uh, and uh, the people are uh, are weaker because of the situation being what it is. Thank you. Okay, panelists, we make our transition to the next article, and before we go on another break, any other final thoughts you'd like to um, share with this audience about this article? What can we take from it? What can we, oh, I know one other question I would like to raise. The question around, what is U.S. interest role in Colombia dealing with this chaos? Because most of the value is directly related to segregation political. They want to control the people's resources, and most of these orders are being taken from outside of the country. Many of these orders are being directed by corporations that is run by companies in the U.S. and Western countries. So what is the U.S. role in this conflict in Colombia? And do we have responsibility to find ways to assist our brothers and sister parents? You take that one side of the discussion, Brother Hackey. Yeah, well, is the U.S. complicitous? Of course. Of course the U.S. is complicitous. And what is it all about? It's all about money. Uh, in addition to that, you know, when we talk about corporations setting up in terms of ex- extracting the resources out of Colombia, uh, keep in mind, people, the Colombians are not being paid what their resources are worth, which means that it creates real economic shortages, or real economic difficulties for the government. And so there's a scramble in terms of, you know, uh, the, the uh, prevailing resources that exist. And, of course, we keep in mind that when, when, when the U.S. corporations are there, they also understand the usefulness or the fertility or the utility of, of racism. And so, therefore, they're telling people, you know, they imply to people, you know, listen, you know, you can take shortcuts. You know, you've got a large African population, you know, uh, do what we do. You know, we, we use these people, you know, you know, uh, you know, for their labor, you know, without paying them. Well, you can do the same thing. The Colombians get the message. I mean, keep in mind, they also have been indoctrinated in terms of racism. I'm talking about the white ones, the ones, the ones who perceive themselves as, as Spaniards. Uh, they they also understand in terms of uh, the, the the usefulness in terms of in terms of exploitation. So clearly, it's a problem. Uh, do, can we anticipate the U.S. reneging or stopping that kind of strategy? Of course not. The U.S. is thoroughly racist. I mean, they're not going to do that. Why would they? Uh, what they want most most of all is access to resources, which means money. And so, therefore, the suffering of the African African Colombians uh, is no concern in terms of corporations. They're really concerned with the extraction of the resources. So it will come upon us, you know, in terms of as we organize, you know, that we, 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 we try to create those structures, uh, you know, in Colombia in terms of providing some clarity in terms of, you know, the world global situation. Uh, certainly at a very minimum, I think what we have to do, we have to understand, we have to push the whole African narrative and understand uh, in terms of understanding the curriculum uh, that exists in Colombia, which says, that this is who you are, and this is your contribution to humanity. Uh, even though the Western world had done a very good job in terms of eliminating your contribution to humanity, now that we know better, we can educate our children. And so, therefore, we can provide the resources in terms of assisting you in terms of that process 
then we should be empowered to do so. So so clearly no one expects the U.S. to stop doing what it's doing. And when we talk about the problems in terms of Afro uh, or the African Colombians, Africa, that problem is going to persist because we keep in mind uh, we're not talking about a system which is predicated upon love, justice, and honesty. It's predicated on, on greed, avarice, uh, uh, power, uh, and control. And so as long as you have those kind of adjectives defining you know, those individuals in those corporations, then you can't expect anything wholesome or positive to come you know, from, from, from such a group. Brother Anthony, who's really bad yeah. at this? I remember about two weeks ago we had a guest, Brother Rodney Mukita, wrote a paper, All Money and Good Money, a document that the company of Chiquito Banana Company, whose headquarters is based in, I believe, Columbus, Ohio, they have funded paramilitary troops to participate in this kind of killing the African people in Colombia solely so they can control the production of minerals, productions of fruit, productions of people labor. Now, the same thing they do in Colombia, they are genocide or displacing um, African communities in the United States. So here we see we have a common enemy. So in terms of this question, mm-hmm. Brother Anthony, what, what can we do? to assist our brothers and sisters in Colombia, if anything? Uh, we, well, we can actually, well, actually, we can, do, we can give them, at a minimum, uh, a platform to, uh, to voice their struggle, uh, something the media isn't doing, and this fits in perfectly to the topic of what the media isn't telling us, because I, because most people, in the U.S., do, ha, uh, you know, don't don't know what's going on in Colombia, particularly the Africans inside the U.S. And so I think uh, I think we have to uh, share information with each other more because uh, because of the way racism operates in Colombia, a lot of Africans in Colombia don't know their history. Or our, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, Africans' contribution to world society. So, I, so I think we need we need to find ways of sharing, being able to share information with each other, and uh, empower them to organize themselves, and um, and uh, listen. And in terms of uh, what the U.S. interests are in Colombia. Which uh, which uh, brother Mwalimu uh, so so well articulated in this paper. Thereafter, the uh, uh, you know the uh, you know the the fruit like the bananas, coffee, and what and uh, and and mineral resources of Colombia and Colombia's labor. Just like uh, you know, just just as and also Colombia is next to Venezuela. So they're trying to uh, they're trying to surround Venezuela with all these neo-colonial client states in order to uh, in order to subjugate South America. You know, panelists, would it be a good idea if we begin starting our own divestment campaign for companies that we know that are doing major harm to our people in Colombia and throughout the world? I mean, every time you pick up a chiquito banana, 
you are indirectly participating in the ongoing slaughtering of our people in Colombia and elsewhere. So maybe as a tool, using divestment as a tool, could that be a tool that could be used to bring about some kind of positive impact of being able to maybe try to minimize the form the, the, the amount of exploitation that our people are facing and oppression? I think it Nothing. could. I think it. I think it would be. I think it. But in order to make it viable, I think we have to improve our level of political organization and political education. And uh, boycott and divestment uh, uh, campaigns in order to work uh, take a take a, a a certain level of organization and also political education as well. Uh, because uh, you, you know you talk, uh, 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 you know you're talking, you're asking people to give up things that 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 they enjoy, and that can be difficult, not impossible, but difficult. And also, and also, it provides work for a lot of people as well. So I think I, I think it would be I think it would be a good idea to divide to divide this from corporations that that exploit our people but it would take uh it would take a, a certain level of of uh education and understanding and organization to make it work it's a tough one brother africa it's a tough one um, philosophically i agree wholeheartedly It'd be a good thing to do more pragmatically speaking, I don't know. Because one of the things, we, we talk about you know, the African community who are biological working class. So a lot of these foodstuffs, particularly bananas, are relatively cheap. It's a source of nutrition for you know, a lot of people who are struggling out here. And I don't think reasonably we can expect you know, people who are struggling, you know, who can only afford bananas, to give that up because it's the only source of um, sustenance. So it's a very, very tough one, very, very tough one, Brother Africa. It's a very, very tough one, uh, you know, I'll simply say philosophically, I agree with you, but I, well, I but I think there, there is some. Go ahead. Well, is there possible? How do we deal with the companies, the presidents, the CEO, the stockholders, the people that we know who run these companies and set these policies? Is there any kind of way we can put pressure on them, as as as, as those who are set the policies and dictating and creating the conditions for their people? Do they continue to walk freely with no recourse? No, I, I, I like I said, philosophically, I, I agree with that, you know, to highlight who they are and to encourage people to disinvest, uh, to not to buy their products. But on the other hand, I, I have to be real when I say that, you know, my concern is for people who are struggling with children, who those, you know, whose who source of sustenance may be those cheap food stuffs uh, which they, they can afford. And so I'd be hard pressed to say, okay, given that reality, you know, they shouldn't consume bananas. You, you know what I'm saying? So that's that's my that's the the, the problem that I'm having in terms of that. But I, I'm I'm but I'm on board in terms of exposing who they are and highlighting who they are. I have no problem with that. Uh, the board kind of have to say more about this because I'm not sure uh, if 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 the, if the inadvertently the damage that we actually inflict be more in terms of uh, inflicting damage upon those uh, who can least afford. Participate in the in 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 the in the, in the, 
a, that kind of um, program. Um, so that's that's my concern. So I'll, I'll leave it at that, Brother Africa. That's that's my concern. Brother Moses, because we also know that Wall Street money plays a major role in these in these countries. Taking money comes from Wall Street, giving to the paramilitary companies and creating these soldiers to do the things they do throughout these countries. Brother Moses, what's your take on this? Well, certainly boycott, divestment, and sanctions is a, is a strategy that the oppressed use, and we're trying it in Israel and, uh, and with the Zionist uh, products. And, um, you know, uh, it, you know, it's like Brother Anthony said, I agree with Brother Anthony, it takes a lot of, of education, which means you have to have organization uh, because it's, it takes a political consciousness to give up uh, these just type thing, uh, 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 and uh, you know it's not an everyday, everyday decision people make. Uh, uh, but it takes a, a big deal of education, and which means there has to be organization. And uh, I, I, I like the concept of. Uh, 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 I'll leave it right there. Thank you. So, panelists, how would the importance of understanding and being a Pan-Africanist will help play a major role in terms of being in a better position to analyze and direct the behavior, the behaviors and actions of our people? I start off with you, Brother Anthony, because this seems like there's a clear case we can see now the importance and the necessity for Pan-Africanism. Mm. Yes. Uh, uh, well, I, th- I agree with you. I think there is a commonality between the oppression that we face in the in the U.S. and other parts of the diaspora, and uh, and our homeland Africa as well. But I think, uh, but but and and it speaks to the need to the need for Pan Africanism, because the unified socialist Africa. Would would be able to stand? Would be able to stand up uh, to uh, you know to superpowers like Europe and uh, and, uh, and, and and the U.S. and Canada in terms of ensuring the protection of the uh, of the human rights of Africans in the diaspora. But right now, in our current state of this organization, we're not. In a position to defend our interests, uh, we need to get to that point. But uh, but without uh, you know our own um, you know means of disseminating uh, 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 information and uh, propaganda, we're kind of limited right now. But you know, but I mean, but uh, you know, uh, you know, position. Papers like the one that, like All Money and Good Money, uh, African Liberation Day, programs such as this, and and numerous others, uh, we uh, we we we, uh, uh, we can impact that uh, paradigm. But it's going it's going to it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of work, and it has to be waged on several different fronts, throughout the diaspora and at home. Brother Aki, your position on the practicality and importance of understanding 
of Pan-Africanism, how it could better aid our people. And if we look at these conditions between the Africans in Colombia, the Africans here, and the Africans elsewhere. Well, I, I think even understanding Pan-Africanism, we understand the international uh, character of, that we have to wage. Um, I, I think that the more we understand that we're all going to come together, uh, we understand not only is it important in terms of, you know, a strong, strong consolidated socialist Africa, but then we understand inherent benefits in terms of having a strong consolidated socialist Africa. So I think it's very, very important, you know, that once we, we understand, make that connection, then we implicitly understand what we have to do, you know, uh, where we are in the world in terms of bringing about some redress, in terms of weakening of the, 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 the imperial structures, you know, undermine the development of Africa. So I think the benefits are that once we understand, you know, that we're all in this together, then we act as though we're all in this together. And I think strategically it makes it much easier in terms of coming together to do the kind of things we need to do in terms of moving this, this struggle forward. So I think that is a real benefit in terms of understanding the, the nature of, of international struggle, particularly around the question in terms of the empowerment of Africa. And, Brother Moses, your response to this issue of Pan-Africanism as relates to the plights of our people around the world? Certainly, uh, uh, Peter Toss said it's no matter where you come from, if you're black, you're an African, and so... You know, injury to one is the injury to all, and we we need that type of uh, of uh, organization that would uh, uh, defend the rights of of, of the African, and uh, no matter what what where they may be found, and uh, that's the concept of Pan Africa, as I understand it, and and uh, so. You know, it's easier said than done. It takes a lot of work to get organized. Thank you. Okay, on that note, listen audience, you're listen to Africa on the Move. We're going to have a station break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about a really special article by a Yvette Cooper titled, Automation Could, Could Destroy Millions of Jobs. We have to deal with it now. We're going to talk about it. And we must understand that we are at war. And when we come back, we will continue to discuss our thing, what the media is not talking about. So we want you to shine in with us by dialing the 323-679-0841. Tell us what you think, what the media is not talking why what the media is not talking about. Because these issues are having an impact on our people and on all of humanity. And if we don't change it, then who will? But again, we have discussion and we'll be right back. We are at war. Lose their life I said, whoa 
and uh, I see that happening as rather than uh, than automation use to alleviate the suffering of uh, uh, of workers, it could be used as a tool uh, to to add to their misery, in the sense that uh, in the sense that uh, the capitalists will find ways to get more work done with fewer people. And uh, while it is true that automation could uh, alleviate some of the repetitive and tedious tasks that are associated with some forms of labor, it could be used to displace labor and also to uh, manipulate, uh, you know, uh, uh, the cost of labor in such a way that labor is further exploited. And that's uh, some uh, some of, of my concern, you know, with automation. But it follows a historical trend that uh, that the more things become automated, the more uh, the more work can more, the more product can be uh, can be obtained with use and fewer people. So under capitalism, it, 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 you know, automation could be used to uh, further oppress. Uh, working people. Blackie? Yeah, well, there's, there's no question about it. Uh, automation, as far as the, uh, the elite is concerned, it's all about productivity. It's about maximizing your, your profits. And it's often due in terms of the good of the, of, the, of, of, of the workers. The thing you have to understand that, you know, one of the things when we, when we talk about, you know, the good of the workers, we certainly have to talk about retooling the workers. I mean, you have to be retrained. But you know what? It costs money. And if you invest that money, then that means that, that has impact on the bottom line. Corporations are not likely, not likely to uh, spend money on retooling workers when, when in fact, that, creates, that causes them to spend more money. They're not going to do that. Because, after all, automation is about maximizing money, not spending money. So that is the fundamental problem. I think one of the things for the Africa, when we talk about this, this, this automation uh, um, uh, you know, one of the things you have to keep in mind is that, you know, Andrew Yang recently talked about uh, universal basic income, and, and this is important because what happens is that only are we, we're not only talking about automation, but we're also talking about jobs simply being eliminated simply because, you know, um, in the minds of those who control industry, there's simply no market for it. So we, we fundamentally we have a problem. So we're talking about large and large, increasingly large and larger number of people who don't have access to work. And the question, of course, is what are all these people going to do who don't have access to work? Now, clearly, Andrew Yang is on to something. He talks about the universal basic income. He talks about $1,000 a month you know, per individual, irrespective of their income. And, of course, he talks about the fact utilizing the tax laws in terms of ensuring some people, uh, particularly the wealthy, pay more taxes and supplement those you know, who are not making as much money or those who are making minimum wage. But interestingly, and I close with this, Brother Africa, also, you know, Oxford University talks about the fact that and they're talking about in the near future, they're talking about 47 percent of workers in the U.S. are going to be re- replaced by automation, 47 percent. I mean, that's an ominous number. Uh, you know, so I think that this whole question in terms of universal basic income has to be part of the equation because clearly, uh, as we talk about uh, the problem in terms of systematic uh, elimination of workers, simply because, keep in mind, the way capitalism works best is that the more people unemployed correlates to more profit. 
And so, therefore, when we talk about full employment in the context of capitalism, we're not talking about everybody who wants a job can get one. It doesn't work like that in capitalism. But capitalism talks about we employ a certain number of people based on the fact they don't impact on our bottom line. See, we only employ so many people to the, to the extent that we, they're profitable. The moment that they become unprofitable, we get rid of them. So that is a problem why in, in the context of the capitalist system, you can never find people who want jobs or uh, been able to have jobs simply because capitalism is not about that. Uh, if, in fact, it's about creating jobs for people, then it would be a socialist system. And, that's, and this is anything but a socialist system. So clearly I think that, uh, you know, the motivation in terms of the capitalist has nothing to do in terms of even putting workers in a position, you know, to take advantage of that, 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 that uh, automation for, you know, better jobs and better pay. Uh, that would affect their bottom line, and they're not interested in doing anything that's going to affect their bottom line. Hey, Brother Moses, I'd like for you to respond to the idea of Amazon is using technology to monitor the people' working habits. And when I say the working habits, I talk about such thing as how fast do you walk, how do you move, so they become more uh, robot-like. What you make of that, Brother Moses? Well, this is a capitalist system at work. I mean, the the tendency to to automate automate things in order to be more efficient and more productive in terms of the product, and which means the bottom line is uh is increased and uh, more profits are made, and so the worker becomes becomes uh expendable or it's it's in a in a more exploited position. Uh, this is just capitalism as at its worst as at its as it works. Uh, and uh you know we we have unions and, and different things that uh try to better the working conditions for the worker but you know the bosses are the bosses and uh and uh you know this is a tendency the trend is towards more and more automation and which means more exploitation of the worker. Thank you. Your panelists the last question for the night before we start closing up and doing a summary is the issue of one issue of cap on the capitalism pluralism as a principle that people have to eradicate. If you don't change the values and principles of a, of a, of a system, then it is very difficult to change uh, the realities of, of people working conditions. And I'm saying this because of the fact that when you read this article, one of the things coming play is why why would there be a motivation to consider the impact of Automation and its impact on joblessness when we live under a system, a capitalist system, that do not value human beings as being human beings. That is a crutch. That is something that we have to deal with until we can resolve one of the many contradictions in capitalism. The automation can do exactly what it does it's going to displace workers and kick them to the curb because they don't value workers as human beings. So how do we overcome that phenomenon, uh, panelists? But how can you start off on this one? Your thoughts on it? Yeah, that? you're right. You're right. Uh, work is our means to an end. It's what can you do for me lately? And they're not concerned about in terms of the overall totality 
of the human existence. That's not their thing. Their thing is hardcore money. But what is interesting, though, Brother Africa, back in 1797, Thomas Paine made a similar argument. His whole position was that, you know, that because you don't value the workers uh, and it's reflected in terms of kind of pay that you pay them, then what, what you need is a basic capital grant, which is sort of the forerunner of the universal, universal, universal basic income. So this notion that human beings uh, are, are, are here to be exploited is being recognized for a long, long time. And you're absolutely correct. Unless you fundamentally change the premise, the, 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 um, the philosophical underpinning of what capitalism is all about, then you can't realistically expect anybody to use uh, automation for the, for the good of human, humanity. It simply doesn't work that way. So I think your point is absolutely correct. Uh, until, until you have a different paradigm, uh, as long as you have capitalism in the whole question in terms of automation and serving humanity is oxymoron. It simply doesn't exist. Brother Anthony, your response? Yes, I, c- I agree with your point uh, uh, wholeheartedly. But the thing about it, though, but if you, but if it, if the paradigm was to change, then it wouldn't be capitalism. And uh, what we need is to is to change the economic system that governs the society, and that can only come about in, through a change in the economic system. And brother Moses, your response? Yes, yes. Uh, the the economic system is a political economy, and uh, and uh, the values that are being perpetuated are determined by the ruling class. And until the working class is the ruling class, we can expect more and more automation and exploitation and more and more capitalism. Uh, the paradigm won't really change us, else you know, capitalism wouldn't be, if capitalism cared about people, it wouldn't be capitalism. So that's, the, that's as he said, it's an oxymoron, and, and that's how I see it too. Thank you. Well, we're done. We're going to take a quick station break, and we'll come back. We'd like to hear your final thoughts for tonight and any announcements that you would like to make. You'll listen to Africa on the Move. Every 
The trip takes place July 24th, July 31st. Uh, for more information, please contact us at 202-714-9435 or email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, number two, at gmail.com. And we encourage people to go to Cuba firsthand and see for themselves, you know, why Cuba is such a great place. Uh, and having said that, let me just say this, Brother Africa. Uh, one of the things, you know, when we talk about the precarious nature of our existence in this country, uh, one of the things we, we, we should take note of the fact, increasingly, not only is the intelligence community expending large sums of money to finance Nazis throughout, the, throughout Europe, we also have right-wing religious groups also spending huge sums of billions, I mean, millions and billions of dollars in terms of popping up right-wing uh, Nazis in Europe. So we got a fundamental problem. Uh, all this suggests that our existence on here, existing on this planet, is not something that uh, those those people in positions of power, be they political or religious, respects. So we got a we got a fundamental problem, and if we don't create some organization in terms of understanding the hard reality that we're confronted with. Then it's a price that we have to pay. So I encourage people to build organizations, build institutions is extremely important. And as always, I encourage everyone to unravel the matrix. And everyone have a good night. Thank you, Brother Hackey, for your contribution to today's program. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts and announcements for tonight. Yes. Uh, my uh, announcement for those people who who would like to uh, hear our uh, African Liberation Day Symposium, please go to our website at www.a- aprp-gc.org and they can learn more about the All African People's Revolutionary Party and here uh, the African Liberation Day Palestine Day 2019 Symposium. Also, we must join an organization that is working for our people's liberation because our enemy is too spread out and powerful First, uh, forced to, uh, to defeat it by ourselves. We must organize and unite. We'd like to thank you as well, Brother Anthony, for today's contribution to this program. And closing, before we make our transition uh, to a special uh, message that was shared at the program yesterday, we're going to share it with you on this program. There were lessons from history or lessons from the 60s through 80s, the brother Ture. We just would like to say that African Liberation Day and Palestine Day was a great success, success, and we'd like to thank all those organizations and individuals who participate and gave such important information so that people could think clearly. And we also would like to thank you for supporting and listening to the programs on a daily basis as we continue to try to disseminate information so that people have the kind of information that they need in order to move forward. Tonight we'd like to remind you and give a shout-out again to the Earth Day of Brother Ho Chi Minh and Brother Malcolm X. This program is a community project of the African Awareness Association, and as Brother Haki mentioned, we do encourage brothers and sisters to come and join the African Awareness Association to its annual Black History Educational Tour to Cuba from July the 24th to the 31st. You can do that by calling 202-714-9435 or go to our website at www.aaa-cubatools.com. 
my final thoughts is let's get organized. This is what African Liberation Day, Palestine Day is all about. Organization is the weapon for the press. So right now, we can go back in history and take some lessons down from Brother Kwame Ture in terms of lessons we should learn from the 60s to the 90s. In honor of African Liberation Day and our mother Africa, we're going to go forward with Brother Kwame Ture. We thank you for your welcome. We have been allotted uh, half an hour, and uh, within this half an hour, we are to explain some of the lessons of the movement of the 60s and uh, its relationships of the 80s and relevance to the 21st century. I have picked about uh, five areas that I, I have picked about five areas which I would like to uh, discuss. The first lesson that we can come to look from the 60 and gain is the understanding that the statement made by Abraham Lincoln is a true statement. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. This statement can be understood within the context of United States imperialism and its role in the late 50s. In the late 50s, based on the resolutions passed at the 5th Pan-African Congress in 1945, a decision was made that Africans the world over must create mass organizations and mass movements to confront colonialism in Africa and the Caribbean in the final round and also to confront racism and economic exploitation in the United States. From 1945 to 1960, Within 15 short years of this conference, over 230 million Africans were to gain independence. Swiftly following in that wake, the Caribbean was to light a fire with independence movement, and of course, the United States of America itself, beginning its mass movement since the mid-50s with Martin Luther King and the Montgomery boycott, came to show mass movements everywhere. The American capitalist system, in the wake of the independence struggle in Africa, was trying everywhere to demonstrate to countries just struggling against colonial powers in Europe that it was not like the European powers, that it was not racist, it was democratic, it never had colonies, etc., etc. The African masses in America came to put that lie to arrest quickly. Mass struggle inside the country came to demonstrate before the entire world that America was far from being a democratic country. It came to demonstrate, in fact, that countries in Africa were much further advanced in democracy than America ever was. Here, at least, Africans can vote. In America, they could not. One of the lessons, then, that we must draw squarely from the 60s is an understanding that real struggle must be left and must be understood only by the masses of the people. It is the masses of the people who could not believe the lies of America and came to struggle instinctively against these lies. This instinctive struggle must be properly understood. History, of course, is made both consciously and unconsciously. Last month in Miami, 
Africans came to unconsciously make history by revolting against brutal conditions and pushing humanity forward. But this was instinctive, unconscious, unplanned. Indeed, this is the same aspect of the struggle that we saw in the 60s, instinctive struggle. That's if we're to draw a conclusion just from this aspect of struggle, that is to say the people struggling unconsciously, unplanned, spontaneously, and instinctively, that since people have an instinctive love of freedom, everywhere they will struggle for freedom. The history of Africans in America proved this clearly. Nowhere have they consciously organized to make advance. All the advances they have made have been unconscious, instinctive, and spontaneous. Certainly you can understand what will happen when these people become thoroughly organized. The lessons then must be clear. Human beings like animals of the lower form have instincts. Human beings unlike animals of the lower form have the ability to think and reason. The lesson then must be clear. All of our instincts at all times under all conditions must be governed by reason. The instinctive struggle of the 60s the spontaneous struggle of the 60s, the unconscious struggle of the 60s, if they, are served to, if they are to serve to us as lessons, must come to be qualified in conscious movements, or rational movements, and planned movements. This then seems to me to be the first lesson that we would have to acquire from the 60s. <clears throat> of course, the capitalist system lies all the time. Some people think it lies some of the time, but it lies all of the time. And in lying, it has an attempt to make us think that in the 60s we were an organized people and everything was all right. We were not organized. We were a mobilized people. Thus are we to get a heavy lesson from the 60s. The lessons must be clear. A mobilized people, really, an instinctive people, a spontaneous people who struggle, struggle like animals. Even if we take the example of Miami, we can see it clearly here. In Miami, we're oppressed just like we are everywhere else. But we wait until an outside force provokes us into action. Everywhere you will see us, it is always an outside force that provokes the African masses into action, even on the campus here. I told some brothers the other day, you want to organize all the African students on the campus? I can do it overnight. All I got to do is write a filthy sign, derogatory against them, put them on the campus, next day they all come to the meeting. <laughs> And one of the errors that must be corrected, a people struggling for their freedom cannot depend upon an external force to push them into motion. They must have an internal dynamism of their own. Consequently, the African masses in drawing lessons from the 60s must come clearly to understand that they must have a dynamism in their hands to tell them when to attack the enemy, how to attack the enemy, and where to carry their struggle. Thus, the 60s must come to be qualified from a mobilized struggle to an organized struggle, we say they fight like animals. You back an animal up against the wall and the animal, even a rabbit, will come out striking at you until you back up. Those Africans, once provoked, come out striking wildly as they do in Miami. The police retreat, give them some concessions, they sit down, and then the police comes back with more repression. None of the gains made by a, by a mobilized people can be maintained. It is only an organized people who can make gains and use those gains to further their struggle. Indeed, the gains made by the 60s, since they were made by an unorganized people in a state of mobilization, have not been used by the people, but in fact used by the enemy against the people. 
It is clear for the history of Africans in America that unlike others in this country, the history is not the same, entirely different from everybody else. All those who came here came here expecting a better life. An African put on a slave ship from Africa knew he was coming to hell. It's a fact. Consequently, the relationship between the country cannot be same unless this African has lost consciousness of his history and think that he came on the Mayflower. <laughs> this aspect of organization from mobilization must be properly understood. No individual African in this country makes any advancement based on his individual talents or worth. All individual advancements are based on mass struggle. This must be properly understood and can be properly underlined for you once you know the history of Africans is not the same as the history of others. We make no progress in this country without shedding our blood. No one sitting in this audience can give me one example where Africans in this country have made any progress without shedding their blood. In order for them to get into a filthy five and ten cent store, they must shed their blood. In order to sit on a bus where they pay the same amount as everybody else do, they must shed their blood. In order to get their children into state schools where they pay taxes more than anybody else, they must shed their blood. In order to get the vote which every immigrant gets the minute he comes here, they must shed their blood. Consequently, any advances made by any individual African is made as a result of mass struggle. Thus, that position does not belong to the individual African, it belongs to the people. Failure to use this position for the benefit of the people is a betrayal of the blood of the people. Consequently, when we come to correct the 60s and look properly at the lessons, we must become an organized people who once having made gains are capable of choosing for ourselves who will occupy those gains. They come to talk about some man named Brown who's going to be head of the Democratic Party. Who picked him? Who picked him? Did the African masses in the Democratic Party pick him? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Democratic Party holds the Africans in great contempt. They have more elected positions than any other ethnic group in the Democratic Party and has no power in the party at all. They have 302 mayors, 20 congresspeople, 5,000 state, county, local, but no other ethnic group in this country has those many elected officials and still they have no power in the Democratic Party. Why? Because we are not organized. Consequently, to transform our movement, to push it to higher levels, which it must go, because we will arrive at our freedom, if even instinctively, we must come here to put ration and clear reasoning to our struggle and organize the masses of our people. The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. Students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know it must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is geared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. <laughs> that was life. Students, we say, at the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. 
But certainly if one is here for revolution and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation at all. Students then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in any society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in a society or you reject it. Students, once having rejected a society, bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values connected with the masses always give us revolution. Thus from the 60s, while a reform movement, we were able to see that students, joined with the masses of the people, came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus we must not confuse ourselves, the job of students are clear here. Their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers, and the peasants. But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly, if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop any activity at all that runs against the status quo. We say it's a mobilized people who can allow this because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution, and we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system made on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masses of their people. Thus that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. <clears throat> Thus, thus, students of the 80s going into the 90s have a responsibility to use their knowledge to help advance the struggles of humanity. We say the lessons here must be properly understood, and the students going to spark these movements must go properly organized in order to bring organizational skills to the masses of the people. The third area. The 1960s, of course, was a mobilized area, and as a mobilized area, there would be a lot of confusion. One of the biggest areas of confusion was the basis of the struggle. Some felt that the basis of the struggle must be made by appeals to morality. Of course, anyone knowing anything about struggle knows that this cannot be. Even Frederick Douglass so long ago told us that uh, power concedes nothing without demands. It never did, and it certainly never will. Consequently, what was learned from the struggles of the 60s is that when one comes to struggle, one must struggle for power, not for morality.
Certainly, one cannot speak of morality when one is speaking to capitalism. It is an immoral system. It has no conscience. It knows only its own interest. It will commit genocide to take land from the red man. It will commit slavery to enrich itself. It will drop napalm bombs on babies in Vietnam. Consequently, when we come to talk of advancing ourselves through power, we must come to speak of just that, power. And we must understand that the only place we find power is through the organized masses. Simply put, until the masses of our people are organized, we will remain powerless and thus the victims of all vicious powers that seek to exploit us. The question of morality, of course, must not be put aside, no. But it is clear that any struggling people struggling for justice are already struggling uh, for a moral struggle. Consequently here, the question of morality doesn't lay with them but with the enemy who seeks to keep them oppressed. We must then understand clearly that when we look for power in the 90s, we must look, when we, look for, when we struggle in the 90s to advance ourselves, we must struggle only based on our own power, the power of the, the ability to organize our people. Of course, we said that we advance only through mass struggle, and that is clear. Consequently, we must come to understand that it is only through mass organization and conscious mass struggle that we will properly arrive at our liberation in a planned manner. This leads to another point which must be clear, the questions of coalitions. The 1960s, of course, made many errors with coalitions. Here, we believe that political coalitions could be made based on sentiment. Somebody said they feel the way we do, and consequently we come to organize them. The history, of course, of our people shows that this cannot be the case. If one would go back to the history of the South in this country immediately after the Civil War, there arose at that time a party known as the Populist Party. One of the leaders of the Populist Party was a man by the name of Tom Watson, a white man from Georgia. Watson came after the Civil War to tell the Africans that the rich white man, he exploits the poor white man and the poor African. And consequently, what we need to do is to join an alliance against the rich white man. Well, you know, as Africans, we just love anything anybody. We just ran into the party. <laughs> we filled the party of the populists. We did work for the populists. We were everywhere in the populist party. After the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, when the government decided to give the South back to the slave masters, Tom Watson became a member of the Ku Klux Klan and drove us out of the populist party. What was the error? The error was that as a force we were not independently organized, thus not even knowing our own power. We went in as individuals into the party, thus they could chase us out. Examples will be found everywhere. The struggle of the labor movements in this country is certainly instructive. If one would look at the struggle for labor unions in this country, one would find that Africans have everywhere played a role out of proportion to their numbers. If you look at labor unions today, they are racist from top to bottom. What was the error? Africans came to enter the unions without being first an organized force. The 60s then come here. We were told that we had coalitions with groups I've never heard of, the labor union. We had interests with the church groups, all of them. They were all, all for our interests. <laughs> of course, the error was that some Africans thought that the interest of America was the same as the interest of us. Of course, the job of the system, the job of the enemy is to confuse you and to let you think that your interest and your history is the same as that of your oppressor. As a matter of fact, the job of the master is to convince the slave that the master is really concerned about the interests of the slave. And if the master doesn't do well, the slave will be in trouble. Any slave who believes that he has the same interests as the master will pick cotton at night. All slaves must understand that 
their interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the master. Not only are they diametrically opposed, they are antagonisms to each other. What is good for the master is bad for the slave. What's bad for the master is good for the slave. Of course, we said that even the people instinctively understand this, and the 60s come to clarify the point clearly. Of course, if you would look at the 60s, you would see at the height of the struggle, the struggle for human rights, came to be, uh, there came to be some confusion here with the war in Vietnam. The people always see clearly. Instinctively, the people understood, the African masses, that they had to be against the war in Vietnam. There was no question here. But it was in just expression of this position against the war in Vietnam that one came to see that in order to have coalitions, one must really have coalitions based on interest. I am not even talking here of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was really the radical cutting wing of the movement of the 60s, and which was the first one to take a position against the war in Vietnam. Indeed, it did not take a position for peace. It took an anti-imperialist position. It said clearly it wanted the Vietnamese to win, and the way it was going to do that was to demobilize the Americans by not having an army. Thus, the slogan which Snick gave to them was a simple one. Hell no, we won't go. Simple as that. And that simple slogan, of course, came to cause splits within these coalition forces. The labor unions who walked hands in hands with us for, for struggles, all of a sudden were for the Vietnam War against us. The church itself had to step back. Obviously here, we didn't understand what we were fighting for. We thought we were fighting for freedom. And Dr. Martin Luther King said it all the time, freedom is indivisible. As a matter of fact, he used to say all the time, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Consequently, if there's injustice in Vietnam, I'm stupid thinking I'm sitting in America not to think that it affects me. If there's injustice in Vietnam, I better go cut it down before it comes to find me. Consequently, since Africans, assuming that justice was indivisible and began to move and to move everywhere against injustice, they came up against contradictions with those whom they made coalitions around the question of the war in Vietnam. We only use it here as a clear example. Africans cannot form coalitions until they themselves are organized and know exactly what their interests are. Thus, there's no need for us to talk now about coalition with anybody because we are a disorganized people. First, we must become organized. It is for this reason that we're held in such contempt by the Democratic Party, because inside the Democratic Party, we are a disorganized people, even inside the there, with one fighting against the other, simply because we have not organized ourselves properly. It is for this reason that they will give us somebody and make us think that we pick them just because he looks like us. <coughs> Coalitions, then, can only be formed once we are organized and know precisely what our interests are. What then are the relevancy for the 90s? Revolution is inevitable everywhere in the world, this is clear. And anyone taking just a cursory glance at the United States of America must know that America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. What are the conditions that lead us to this conclusion? Number one, the conditions are worse today than they were in the 60s. In the 60s, we didn't have to deal with three million homeless. And not only that, the very objective conditions put the people into contradictions with their own instinctive knowledge. Every man and woman in America, even the most unconscious man or woman in America, knows that America has enough wealth to feed and clothe three million homeless. It's a question of the will of the people. 
Consequently, the objective conditions which they are higher, but these objective conditions are higher with also another rising factor, the rising consciousness of the people. The enemy tries everywhere through their mouthpiece, the mass media, to make it appear as if the people's consciousness is not growing, as if it stopped. This is stupidity. The consciousness of the people must forever grow. And some of us become confused, not even understanding how it manifests itself. The other day, having a discussion with an elderly man, he came to say to me, Kwame Ture, you're always up on the college campus with our students. I said, oh yes, I work with them all the time. He said, uh, they are more unconscious. They're so unconscious, they're more unconscious than you were when you were a student. I said, never. He said, yes. I said, no, if they're more unconscious than we were, our work was in vain in the 60s. He said, no, I'm telling you, they're more unconscious than you are. I said, no, they cannot be. He said, if you go up on the college campus and talk to them, they know nothing about Martin Luther King, they know nothing about Malcolm X. I said, that's correct. We don't teach them. But one thing is certain, you cannot put them on the back of a bus. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. Conscious he was, he went on the back of the door. <laughs> Once history is made, it cannot be unmade. The job of the enemy is to push the people back. Once we broke out of slavery, they did everything possible to push us back into slavery. No, sharecropping, yes, but not slavery. Since the 60s, they've been doing everything else to push us back. But once a man or a woman has learned something, as Sigmund Freud has scientifically demonstrated, it never leaves the mind, even if he thinks he's forgotten it. And once the people have learned something through struggle, never can they forget it. Consequently, the struggles of the 60s must be, un must, you must understood, are already ingrained in the culture of the people, making them more determined to fight, not less. If you come to look properly at America, we say it is more ripe for revolution today than ever before. In the 1960s, and we must show here the rising level of political consciousness, if you want to see the rising level of political consciousness in this country, don't look to the left, look to the right. The right in America today are involved in activities which in the 1960s they considered to be communist. If you would look properly at America today, you will see the conditions are more ripe. In the 60s, the progressive forces were facing the government and the right wing, which were fighting for status quo. Today, the right wing is not with the government. It's against the government. It's fighting the government. You have the right fighting the government and the left fighting the government. The possibility of change becomes easier, even though the right is not fighting for the same change the left is fighting for. That's understood. But the fact that both of them are fighting against the government makes the possibility of change much easier. And we say, if you want to see the rising level of consciousness, look to the white right in this country. Where they disagree with busing, they burn buses. Where they disagree with abortion, they bomb clinics. Thus, they themselves have come to demonstrate the use of violence as a potent force in arriving at a political objective. Everywhere, the conditions for revolution are more ripe today than ever before. And in all of this is, of course, the rising consciousness of the people. The younger generation of Africans in this country, the youth, really believe that everything in America they have a right to. They believe it as a result of the struggles of the 60s. When they come up against a wall, there's going to be a serious explosion in this country. That explosion cannot be a repetition of the 60s. Indeed, history never repeats itself, even though bourgeois scholars never stop harping this song. <laughs> Nothing repeats itself. But people, however, can repeat their mistakes. Yes. And of course, once you repeat a mistake, it is more grave than the first time around. The lessons then must be clear. There is no question, and you must in no way lose faith in the masses of the people. It is they and they alone who make revolution, not their petty bourgeois spokesmen who betray them everywhere. 
and the conditions of the masses are worse today than they were in the 60s, these masses must have changed and will have changed by any means necessary. The final point then, the final point then, you must not become confused by the American capitalist system which holds up betrayers of the people's struggle as representatives of the people. In any army in the world, if you desert, you should get shot. It's a law. Certainly you must be shot. And if you volunteer for an army, you should be shot twice. <laughs> of, course. of course. You volunteer for the people's army. The people go to fight. They're ready to fight. You say, I'm leaving. What do you mean you're leaving? But if you will look at our struggle since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa, they seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on the blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then for the 60s, the class struggle in the African Revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. Here then the masses must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back the gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America they say our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. For the African masses everywhere, the clairpoise position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we, who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we, who knowing that the people will always be free, we, understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. The organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor, we're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down, we're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you.